One sermon that could be preached from this passage is about not resting on your laurels, not saying, in effect, we have Abraham as our ancestor, as if it were an excuse, a way to shove your duty on someone else, to keep from being held responsible for your own actions or failures. But I don't see that as a problem in this congregation. I don't see laziness or sloth or passing the buck as a besetting sin among this people. This is a people who have been through the waters. This is a people who have been purified with fire, who have walked in the wilderness. The people in front of me this morning are survivors. You have trod the uneven ground of perseverance and in many cases for decades, and without any great worldly acclaim or reward. Indeed, the immediate reward for raising your families and bringing them to church has been that they've moved on to other churches and other places and other jobs. They've left home. They've learned to fly. You've withstood the deaths of spouses, the betrayal of trusted friends and institutions. You've stood with your children and your loved ones as they've fought illness and poverty, addiction and temptation. You are all survivors. And I'm not just talking to the more mature of our congregation either. Those younger members who are here have very consciously chosen this little upstart church in the unshiny part of Dallas. They've determined that worldly acclaim is not what they're after, that throwing in their lot with a ragtag bunch is God's call for them. The young here this morning, too, have suffered divorce and cancer, unfaithfulness and alcoholism. Being defensive about our pedigree or prideful about our works does not have a foothold in this place. But I see another sermon, one which I need to hear and which I feel called to preach this morning. It's perhaps more uncomfortable than the first sermon I was talking about. It might make you shift in your seat even a little bit more than a call to do reach out and help. The crowds ask John the Baptist, what should we do? And I wonder if that's the question that we ask too. We ask it of God, of each other, of scripture. And this morning, more than a call to action, I see in the Gospel of Luke a call to inaction. <clears throat> now, this might be a besetting sin of our congregation. I know it is a daily struggle of mine. Feeling overwhelmed and as if I am not equal to the task set in front of me, I busily make lists and start projects, schedule events, hold meetings. I compulsively check my email and respond lightning fast. 
I bustle around Charles and around the house, spinning plates in a frenzy. And you know what? It doesn't help. It doesn't feel any better for all of my activity. Things still fall through the cracks. There's always more to do, and I'm just as behind, according to my own judgment. So I wonder, especially in this season of societal busyness, whether we as a congregation and each of us individually and as families are called to hold each other accountable to stillness and quiet. I noticed that last part of our gospel passage today deals with the crowds trying to identify who John the Baptist is exactly, wondering whether he might be the Messiah, the one for whom they've been waiting and watching or whether the Messiah will look like someone or something else. They've got a family resemblance, for sure, John the Baptist and Jesus, not only with their mothers as cousins, but both clearly filled with the Holy Spirit. It's easy to wonder whether one is the other. But John the Baptist makes clear that the difference between them is much, much more than a few genes. One who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. This made me wonder, would we, do we notice the difference between John the Baptist and Jesus, the Messiah? Not that we mistake and falsely ascribe worship to John, but that maybe we see the first hint, the first spark of the Holy Spirit, and we jump on the train, we start running the race before the gun has actually gone off. Maybe we're a little bit like Peter when he witnesses the transfiguration and goes off on construction plans for these shelters for the spiritual beings that he sees in front of him. Do we see or witness or experience a wave of God's grace and immediately run off to spend it somewhere? Do we respond to a prompting of God's spirit by jumping into action, running off to Home Depot for lumber or to Target for Christmas gifts or to the kitchen to clean up or to make a casserole? I wonder if we might be cutting off the Holy Spirit, if we might be curtailing God's hand. Not that we wield so much power as to derail the Almighty God's purposes, but like toddlers, I'm afraid we might get up and start running around before the conversation is over, before God has finished speaking. Maybe a little bit like Martha, Mary, and Martha, busy about many things as Jesus sits in our midst. The crowd questioned in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah. 
they ask a good question, and they reveal that they're thinking through the experience that's unfolding in front of them. They're taking a moment to reflect on what they've seen and what they've been through, what they've learned, their knowledge from growing up in the church, in the synagogue, and their hard-won wisdom. All of this leads them to good questions, whether the man in front of them might be the Messiah. This, too, is a crowd full of wisdom, full of life experiences, and tough ones. And those, I have found, are fodder for the most powerful revelations. But the way to mine these experiences, the way to move through and spin the pain into gold, is to sit still for a while. And that is not pleasant. That is not fun. It's a lot harder than making a casserole or a tray of brownies, than buying books or bustling around the kitchen, than complaining about changes or harboring disappointed expectations behind people's backs. Sitting still in our grief. Slowing down long enough to pay attention to our pain feels yucky and heavy. And can't we just skip that bit and move on to the part where everything is healed and coming back together and thriving and growing again? In giving us the season of Advent, our Lord in his infinite wisdom and our forebears in their great grace say to us, No. If you want to grow and you want to come to know Jesus, if you want to live in the truth, to stop lying to yourself, you must look at the desert that you have traversed. You must remember the waters rising up to your neck. You must unpack the searing pain of loss and the dizzying nausea of newness. We may not skip to the part with the baby and the twinkling lights and the comforting carols. Not if we want the Messiah. So, my brothers and sisters, I call you to a holy advent, to an act of resistance against our culture, both secular and sacred, to stillness and silence, to sitting with your jumpy, anxious, sad, grief-ridden, soul, and to sit in that place with God. He has been there as you walked through the wilderness. 
He has held your face above the waters and waves as illness has threatened to drown you and your family. He has provided shade in midday when you are parched and sunburned. The courage to look back and notice the wounds you've sustained and survived them. And then have the peace to commit them to God. Our growth as a congregation in 2019 as separate souls called to a common life in God's kingdom depends on being transformed, on being made new. And we simply cannot fully enjoy the life that God offers in his infant son unless we submit to to the growing pains. <laughs>